Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Christopher Bandini, one of the co-hosts of New Books in Psychoanalysis, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Theodore Jacobs, who is a child and adolescent psychoanalyst, as well as an adult analyst in private practice. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry uh, emeritus at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and a training supervising analyst at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute and Institute for Psychoanalytic Education. Dr. Jacobs is also a past president of the Association for Child Psychoanalysis, and he's here today for us to speak about uh, his book, uh, The Possible Profession, The Analytic Process of Change. So uh, welcome, Dr. Jacobs. Uh, uh, One of the customary ways we start uh, these interviews is to ask you, uh, what led you to write this book? I had been thinking about this uh, issue primarily, that of the unconscious communication between animals and patients. For some time, it's been a kind of a strong, ongoing interest, and I wrote a series of papers uh, with that major theme, although there are other issues I'm also concerned with, and I thought it'd be good, uh, <clears throat> after uh, quite a few years since my first book, to bring them all together uh, <laughs> in another volume. It's quite a uh, quite a far ranging book uh, with a, and, and a lot of material is covered in it and uh, you know uh, and and it really t- really took me some time to read it because it, there's so much it's quite it, it's it's a in a sense it's a very rich book. Thank you. Uh, and of course, uh, you know we we can't really go too far without uh, talking uh, really about enactment and about your role and kind of how you've had that concept attributed uh, to you. Uh, can you speak a little about the history of that? And uh, and you also covered in the book, so I wonder what you can say about that. Yes, the uh, as you well know, the uh, before the word enactment came into uh, common use. You know, we would speak um, almost always of acting out. Uh, the patient would act out. Uh, unless we go on vacation, the patient would act out. Or the patient was angry and would take it out on someone else and so on. And after a while, that concept, which was originally a neutral one, just to try to speak to the idea of action in place of thought, uh, became... Uh, used in a pejorative way. It was very rarely used other than in a kind of accusatory the patient was doing something bad by acting out. And uh, as a result, it seemed to me to have lost its original meaning. And I was simply searching for another word that would be better, at least more neutral, and uh, perhaps uh, convey something that would allow people to look at the, at the uh, phenomena rather than immediately take a uh, a prejudicial view of the, of the patient. And the word, uh, English word enactment simply occurred to me. And so I, I used that word. I was not thinking of introducing any new concept or new idea into psychoanalysis. But it seemed to have hit a, a resonant chord because uh, people soon picked it up. I guess everyone was looking for a word that would be uh, better. And uh, it now has taken 
root as a very common expression and one that has carried uh, quite a bit of different, well, some different meaning than what I originally had in mind. I think the concept has expanded some. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, can you can you speak a little bit about how it is different now? It does seem like it's it's kind of everywhere, and it seems like it has different meanings. Um, and I think you do address it uh, also in the book. So, any thoughts on that? I'm sorry. Did you say? Did you see it everywhere? It's kind of everywhere, and and it's it, it seems to have different meanings everywhere. It seems to kind of like you said, yes, have, yeah. have gone off. And 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 I think in yeah, your, originally, uh, what I had in mind was that uh, a patient would respond most usually to some experience of the that was going on in the transference, not always well articulated, but was. There was a strong uh, transference aspect to uh, what I had in mind. Uh, the patient would uh, have strong feelings one way or another and would put those feelings <clears throat> into action rather than filtering them through the concept of thought. But at the same time, I thought of enactment as almost always carrying a certain element of reenactment. That is, it was the repetition of some earlier way of dealing with a problem which had may have occurred in the, in the person's childhood or adolescence and was sort of re-evoked in this, in this current situation. Uh, I did not, uh, in my original thought, limit it to simply the patient or the analyst, but it could be either, and either one could be enacting something, or it could be a kind of mutual uh, process where the patient would respond to something uh, he or she felt towards the analyst. The analyst might then enact something in relation to the patient. Uh, that was my original idea. Yeah, subsequently, it's taken on much more of the meaning of a mutual uh, interaction between patient and analyst. So when people speak of enactment today, it almost always involves both patient and, and analyst but still carries the original idea of an act uh, in place of, of thought. There seems to be also, of course, of course, there's overlap with with the concept of countertransference, and and I, I guess uh, uh, your elaboration on countertransference not being uh, simply something that needs to be analyzed away, and I think that seems to have something to do with enactment. Uh, am I correct there? Countertransference often takes the form of an, of an enactment, uh, even in very subtle ways. Uh, I mean, it, it ranges from, in my opinion, from simply something that goes on almost unobtrusively in an hour, such as the analyst turning from a patient, uh, lowering a tone, speaking in a, a more a stentorian tone at some time. Uh, these little little bits of enactment are all part of the analyst's inner response put into action, in, which go on just all the time, uh, aren't always picked up by either person, uh, but one can speak of them as kind of mini enactments, but they carry also in the counter-transference of a larger, uh, more obvious enactment, uh, where uh, an analyst is late for a session, or holds a patient over a long time, or finds himself <laughs> um, perhaps changing the uh, the ground rules of the game by perhaps uh, 
giving the patient extra time, but whatever it is, whatever goes on, it uh, can transfer almost always carries some element of an of a, an act and an action. Uh, it's not uh, a pure countertransference feeling without having put it into action. It goes on, but it's it's relatively, I would say, rarer, you know, because we all tend to to uh, express things in our bodies as well as as with our minds. So, uh, but transference enactments are are you know equally uh, common, as we all know who practice. Mm-hmm. So it's both transference and countertransference, I would think, that are often enacted. In the book, there's, I mean, you address many issues of technique. As I was reading it, I was thinking that it was, um, at times, sometimes somewhat of an answer to some of the um, the variations in technique that have kind of occurred over the, say, the past 20 or 30 years, uh, especially around certain issues. I'll, I'll, I'll toss out a few of them and maybe uh, we can address them uh, in terms of, say, drive theory as one or interpretation, uh, you know, or self-discovery. What was the first one you said? Uh, drive theory. Like drive theory, yes. you know that 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 many many people who, who say they are analysts no longer uh, say they're drive theorists. Uh, many many analysts no longer say that they believe in the in the primary uh, uh, action of, of therapy as being uh, being interpretation, um, and also the use of self disclosure. So it was just a couple that I, I noticed as I was reading the book, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Well, because uh, my own feeling is that. Uh, I don't think we should throw away the things <clears throat> that have been of great value for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, I think of that as kind of a the trunk of a tree, a very large, powerful trunk of a tree, which carries with it a great deal of, of wisdom, a great deal of knowledge accumulated over many years, to which we now add you know, branches, uh, interesting new ideas and new ways of thinking but never need to discard uh, what has proven itself to be useful. At the same time, we don't want to just uh, carry over uh, concepts which have lost their usefulness. Uh, Drive theory is is not as um, used as commonly today, but, I mean, I don't think we can completely uh, discard the idea of human drives because we all have them. They all are there they with some patients they cause us they cause considerable uh, anguish and, and conflict and other people less so uh, but uh, I think our uh, our technique has moved away from the analyst as the silent listener and the observer and the fount of wisdom and the knowledge who receives the patient's communications and offers uh, some understanding through interpretation. Uh, that idea didn't take all, all into account the constant flow and exchange of uh, communication that goes on between patient and analyst, which carries so much meaning. So I think in the older days, uh, when the analyst just offered interpretation, he missed a lot of the subtleties that were going on between the patient and the analyst. Interpretation still you know, plays a very central role. But also what plays an important role is to recognize the verbal and nonverbal exchanges which communicate, you know, more than just what is said in words, but carry a lot of meaning. 
uh, we learn so much more about infancy, about nonverbal world, you know, existing until a child can speak. All of those have filtered into our techniques, so we put much more emphasis, I think, today on recognizing the dance, the nonverbal world and the interaction between patient and animals is a source of, of information. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. Things have changed quite a bit, but it doesn't mean that, that human beings have changed you know, fundamentally. We're, we're still the human beings that we were fundamentally you know, 50 years ago. The culture has changed, but not, not so much human nature. So I, I believe both in the old and the new, on the one-person psychology and the two-person psychology, I think both are, are relevant. Hmm. Do, do you see like a, uh, is it kind of that in, in one person and a two-person psychology, is there kind of a shift back and forth, say, between moment to moment in a session, or how, does, how, do, they, how do they both fit together, if they do? I think they do fit together since uh, the person... A patient, for example, brings to us a <laughs> me, a load, uh, a backload of, of uh, feelings and thoughts and conflicts and uh, the history that they have. Uh, their the, the the years that we call the uh, those years of, of childhood uh, calamity, where people have to deal with human conflicts around uh, loss, around loss of love, or fear of bodily injury, uh, fear of one's own superego, and all those things we struggle with, those are all internal. And uh, they, they've been there in the patient long before the patient has met us. At the same time, there's the world of objects which the patient is continually reacting to from infancy on. And he learns, she learns how to deal with those of the world of objects, develop strategies, ways of gaining gratification, of avoiding pain, and so on. Those get played out with the, with the analyst as well as with others. So we're always dealing with the inner world as it expresses itself in the patient's life, as it, and also in, in treatment, and the patient's way of dealing with the moment with the analyst. Oh, one and two, mm-hmm. and to go together, mm-hmm. as they do in life, it seems to me. Uh, do you think that maybe classical analysts were doing it all along, but it wasn't it wasn't mentioned, or do you think it's something that that eventually got got picked up? How do you think that developed? That that really that, that the the more classical stance started to started to kind of pick up on this idea of of, of you know uh, external relations or or uh, interpersonal relations kind of being important to the treatment. Well, I mean, I think that one should try to recognize that even going back, back to the, the, the Freud's earliest writings, uh, he was always interested in, in the world of, of objects. It's just that he put emphasis on the inner world of the patient, because that was what he was trying to establish first, the inner psychology. But he well was well aware of the environment. He was well aware of the influence of of uh, parents, of, of, of uh, caretakers. Um, in fact, he had some of his earliest ideas uh, in, in Little Hans were about the relationship with, with the parents. Uh, and Dora, he, he had actually met Dora's father. He knew that he was a lot of a scoundrel, and he took that into account and how her relationship with the father influenced her and so on. 
But his emphasis as a sort of biological scientist at first was on the inner world. As uh, people got more sophisticated and others began to write more about object relations, especially the English and British school, uh, people began to expand their knowledge and their understanding of uh, the uh, relational school, which for a long time was sort of uh, kept at bay and, and uh, excluded from uh, the classical tradition, began to filter in through our understanding of what uh, uh, the major contributors there had to offer. So I think it was uh, a gradual expansion of knowledge and I think, frankly, the dying out of the older generation that was both loyal to Freud but also close-minded. Yeah, so it was an expansion of the field, I think. Uh, yeah, I think you mentioned in your book about how when the analyst emigrated here that that they really felt they should keep a pure version uh, of analysis, and that might have had an effect on kind of this uh, uh, more focus on the yeah. intrapsychic. They were very protective of the professor. They were afraid that his great gift, which was, of course, a great gift, uh, to... Uh, to the understanding of the human mind would be altered, uh, would be downgraded, uh, would be sort of um, uh, contaminated by American pragmatic culture. <laughs> uh, he did not particularly like America. He didn't like uh, the general lack of, of depth and understanding of psychology. He didn't like the pragmatic approach of sort of living in this country. And so he was a little afraid of what would happen, and his uh, his followers uh, were very protective of Freud. They became very suspicious of uh, American psychology, even the American Psychoanalytic Association. They didn't particularly favor thinking of them as, again, taking away rather than adding to what Freud had to say. It took a long time for that to begin to wear away and for people to appreciate what others had to offer. It's still sort of bifurcated on both sides, actually. You know, mm -hmm. National school, uh, you know, was shunned a lot of the uh, what Freud and Freud followers had to offer. I think largely because of they were felt excluded from from um, from the uh, analytic tradition of, that came with the Europeans. Mm. Do, do you feel like so it's it was a, it was a time. yeah do you feel like it's getting uh do you feel like it's getting better is that bifurcation still going i guess uh white his uh, william allenson white institute is now part of the uh, international so i wonder if that has uh, if that's going to help or <laughs> or hinder things I, I think so i think there's a gradual shift and change it's a greater acceptance from both sides you know it's a little bit uneasy because people have long memories but Basically, there's a definite movement, and I think a very good one. Hmm. We can learn from each other. So how can, how, yes, how can you reconcile uh, maybe the Freudian stages of development with the new research and attachment and infant research? Well, you know, I think that that has been such a great addition uh, because although Freud was a pretty good observer of human life, and even of children, he did not have the research tools or the background uh, to be able to do the fine observation that, for example, Beatrice Beebe and others are doing. Uh, so he didn't have the tools 
or really the knowledge uh, to add uh, as much as has been done recently about the early infant-mother relationship and how certain patterns are established very early. Uh, you know, by four months, by six months, there are certain patterns that are established, both internal regulation, ways of re regulating oneself, one's feelings, and also dealing with the uh, the object and the, the mother or the mothering figure, and how those carry over to some extent. Uh, we never quite lose the earliest uh, ways of being. Freud didn't, you know, he was one person in a different age. He couldn't understand that. But it didn't obviate the fact that what he did contribute about the way human beings develop and the stages of development, that still strikes me as being valid. So the job now is to integrate these things, which I think some people are, are really doing. And the idea of self-disclosure and what people, what, what, what analysts... Self-disclosure, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Self-disclosure was, in my own uh, great training, uh, in experience, uh, was pretty much a taboo. Uh, it was thought to be bad form, and it was sort of acting out on the part of the analyst. Because uh, the analyst's job was to listen to the patient, focus in on the patient, and offer interpretations of the patient's inner world, not to disclose anything about the analyst. So uh, when I began to write a little bit about this, I ran into a, a, a lot of opposition, a lot of condemnation, actually, uh, being called all kinds of names for, uh, you know, exhibitionists, narcissists, mm -hmm. all kinds of things, because I uh, believe that the that there was a, a place at times for offering something of what the analyst experienced, <laughs> experience is a way of helping the patient understand what they were projecting, you know, what they couldn't own themselves but were being projected or through projective identification they were showing in such a way that the analyst would receive that information but the patient was unaware of exactly what they were projecting so that we could help a patient by sometimes sharing some of the inner experiences that we've had with them. This was not met with much favor, but little by little, again, as these these worlds changed and the inner world of the analyst was seen to resonate with the inner world of the patient, and intersubjectivity began to be studied, then people began to say, well, now maybe, you know, the patient can learn something by our sharing some of our inner experiences, not our personal lives, that I don't think. <laughs> Very rarely is that called for, once in a while perhaps, but mostly it's what we have experienced that is coming from the patient uh, that we are able to offer them, you know. It's an additional tool. Mm -hmm. It has to be used selectively because there, I think there's always a temptation to uh, use the patient sometimes as a sounding board for the analyst and share feelings that are troubling the analyst and, and have a kind of reversal where the uh, patient becomes the analyst to the analyst. Uh, or sometimes to issue uh, an apology for something that one feels one may have done or an excuse. I mean, one has to be a little bit careful, in other words, 
how much, with which way we use this. Right. And do you feel like some of that care has uh, has maybe been uh, dis- discarded, at least temporarily, or or by uh, have we swung too far in one direction? I, I, I don't know, because, uh, you know, I don't see so much what other people have done, but in my own particular, you know, little circle of people that I know, they all seem to be fairly careful about that use of it. It's not indiscriminate. Maybe also get people who don't have quite that discipline. Yeah, uh, and I guess another topic that's uh, that's in the book that's uh, really interesting is the is the future of the profession and where you see it going and what's the future of psycho psychoanalysis. I mean, we, you do mention uh, the, the you know how hard it is to get patients sometimes or how hard it is to have a, you know, a multiple frequency of patients. And um, I was wondering where you think it's going. It seems like in some ways the field is so vital in terms of, uh, of conferences and books and, and research. But on the other hand, a lot of people are struggling with, uh, with just those issues of, of how to keep an analytic practice. Yes. I mean, certainly that is true. Uh, I, I, I myself, what I see is that there are a certain number of patients, not all patients, but certainly maybe a small number of patients, who are, could use that in-depth approach, uh, but are not receiving it because they either don't know about it or they've heard prejudicial things against it. And uh, so they've been sort of partly fed by the media, by the general culture, that uh, psychoanalysis is passe, it's all hat, it's mm-hmm. not a current, uh, you know, vital treatment. Um, but as one gets more into a psychotherapy and realizes that the intensity, the frequency makes a difference, that one uh, can reach areas of one's life and, and conflicts that uh, on a more frequent basis begins to appreciate that, and the analyst can help them understand that, they can make a shift to some more, you know, something deeper and, and perhaps more gratifying for them. So the edu- the analyst has to be more now of a bit of an educator and has to explain and has to be willing to meet some of the patient's needs, particularly uh, in the area of fees. Uh, I mean, many people are interested and in, in would be interested in analysis, but they can't afford such you know, high fees that some people are charging. And uh, unless you have a practice of very, very wealthy people, uh, part of having a, a, an analytic practice is being flexible in fees and, and willingness to meet some of the patient's needs. I think there'll always be those that are interested, but it, it's a small group, I think, what I see, for example, now in training is um, that there's a group of people, psychologists, social workers, others, uh, some doctors, not as many uh, physicians, uh, who still have a keen interest in uh, psychoanalysis, want to train, not as many as we used to have, but a small number. And well, if those people are flexible and uh, know how to talk to patients about the value of analysis, all of them seem to have, uh, you know, pretty decent practices. Those who hold out for high fees and aren't really invested in it and don't know how to talk to patients about it, they have more trouble, it seems to me. 
you have to be sort of committed to it and, mm-hmm. and make sacrifices for it. Right, in order to to work for a lower fee, in order to have somebody who will come at greater frequency and, uh, and yeah, and you know, and, and your willingness to meet some of their needs and time and schedule and so on. Uh, it used to be, you know, when I first started, there were waiting lists for patients who wanted analysis, and we didn't have time for them. Uh, but that that time is passed. But I don't think it's totally gone either. Yeah, yeah I have so many more options for for treatment out there and so like oh, yeah. where it used to be sure. kind of the absolutely. only game in town yeah absolutely sure i mean you know in the 40s and 50s and if you wanted in some psychotherapy it, it was with an analyst and intensive work usually um now i mean one can get some very real and significant help through other means <laughs> you know cognitive therapy and other things that, sure. that are in fact very helpful <laughs> But they don't deal with certain things because they're not geared to deal with character problems, long-standing character difficulties, you know, relations with others that have been troublesome for years, uh, you know, certain chronic symptoms. I mean, you know, you can't deal with some of these long-standing problems in a in a way that you know is limited in terms of time and uh, you know, like a ten or twelve or fifteen session. Treatment. Uh, so we need to, we need to do a better job of uh, of publicizing the benefits of of psychoanalytic treatment. Very much so. We've been very poor in publicizing and letting people know what is valuable. Very poor. Uh, other other disciplines have done much better. Really, use the media or the public press or television. You know, in a way that we might be able to. We're not not falsifying it, but simply presenting what is true. I think one of the difficulties, too, is that there are so many theoretical orientations that it's hard to say which one responds to maybe that there's no necessarily proof or or where the research is just starting to come out that certain uh, techniques or certain theories may may be more effective. Clarify, there are certain things for which psychoanalysis is not uh, suited. uh, You know, shorter-term, more focused therapies is uh, valuable. Uh, I think most analysts do quite a bit of psychotherapy these days. And uh, they do it usually quite well, effectively. The analytic training helps them in their psychotherapy. Uh, in terms of training, uh, I guess maybe just to ask you, who uh, who is an analyst? How does one uh, how does one be an analyst? In other words, I didn't go to a classical institute. Uh, I I saw patients three times a week, and I understand that some institutes are are because of the dearth of patients are allowing people to train at twice a week. You know, and and of course the old issue of the couch and versus not the couch and this type of thing. Does is everyone who well, trains? Well, you know, I mean, there's a the formal sort of analytic training through an institute, and that certainly is still, you know, a, a very good way to, to develop one's analytic skills. Uh, but people, uh, you know, analysis doesn't depend on entirely on the frequency. It's not defined by four times a week mm-hmm. or five times a week. It's defined, defined more by, you know, one's approach to the mind, to the way of working. Some patients can have a, a rather deep analytic experience on much less frequency. Uh, you know, I mean, three times a week for some patients is all they can manage, and it can be very good and very helpful. And 
it's not that they're not in analysis because they're coming three times a week or sometimes even t- twice a week. Um, <laughs> it's more the attitude of the analyst than the way he works with the patient. Mm, so that's quite a shift over time. I think that, that that's, it's much more flexible. Yes, much more flexible than it used to be. You know, it used to be an analyst defined by, you know, certain external criteria. You know. It wasn't analysis if it wasn't four or five times a week. Well, that's not really the way it is. In fact, as you know, in the international psychoanalytic, there's some you know, societies, institutes in which three times is standard, both for the candidates and the patients. Like the Paris, the French society, for example. Hmm. So, so in your view, you're saying we're kind of moving past some of these old, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, draw uh, boundaries, old lines that, that right. were that were drawn. Right. I think so. Yeah, hmm. and we're looking more at what the work actually is rather than the externals. Uh, uh, any thoughts about uh, the role of neuroscience and some of the new MRI research that that's going on, and maybe its application to psychoanalysis? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm fascinated, as many people are, by the uh, some of the research and the findings about the, the brain, the fact that uh, they seem to have verified some of Freud's earlier ideas about drives and, uh, and uh, where things are registered in the brain. Uh, it's all very fascinating, but I have not yet quite seen how that interesting research has been effectively applied to uh, to the clinical. Uh, see, I think it will be. Um, and I know that people like Mark Soames, for example, have been speaking about the clinical use of, of the newer uh, neuroscience research. But I don't think it's quite taken hold yet. Maybe we're just not, not there yet. You know... Uh, one thing that does seem to be true, though, pretty well established by now, is that the talking therapies do affect the brain. You know, they do affect, uh, you know, the way, uh, for example, drives are processed, the way the way conflicts are dealt with, so that there seems to be a real effect on on the neurophysiology of talking therapy, and that's very interesting. In itself, you know, we used to think it was only medication or drugs that would do that. So that's interesting, and I think more will develop. You know, we're really in the infancy of this uh, uh, whole field. You know. Yes, I think so. It, it's it's kind of something about the repetition of talking with the same person every week that seems to have an effect on the on uh, on the neurons and kind of and on on people's well being. Yeah, it seems to affect the, you know the. Fixed pathways begin to be altered, uh, and apparently, and the research on mirror neurons uh, is also very fascinating. Uh, you know, because obviously, in some way, you know, we take on from our, our treatment, our analysts, or our therapists, we take on their way of being there, some of their motor behaviors, or you know, identifications, new identifications take place, and partially, perhaps, through the whole the mirror neuron uh, network. You know, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't speak with sophistication about it, but I'm very fascinated about how this is coming in to our field. We we haven't yet been able to use it every day in our work. 
towards the uh, end of the book, you speak about your love affair with theory, and with you mentioned a few uh, theorists. Uh, Hans Lowald uh, comes to mind, and uh, and also uh, your relationship with Charles Brenner. So, I wonder if you had uh, anything you could say about that. Yes, I mean, first about about theory. I think we all have to have some some theory, some way of working. Otherwise, we'd be kind of lost. I mean, and you know, I think uh, that theory gives, acts like a guide for us, a way of orienting us towards the patient, whatever our, our theory happens to be. But we don't want to be slaves to it either, because you know, patients don't read the same books as we do, and they have their own way of thinking and expressing themselves. So we have to be open to always receive what the patient tells us. In, in, in as open a way as possible, and not just be looking, you know, for to to uh, to verify our, our theories. So, uh, it, it, with theory, one has a little bit of an uneasy relationship. I mean, we both need it and value it, and also need to sort of separate from it and to listen freshly to the patient. And maybe the patient is telling us uh, something that doesn't fit our theory, well, we have to then listen to the patient and perhaps uh, from what he tells us, we will find a new way of, of, of approaching him, a new, a new theory that fits. Um, <coughs> uh, I was very taken with the work of, of Lowald, who in the 50s and 60s was uh, seen by the classical school as uh, someone who uh, wasn't a really true Freudian, uh, although he was trained in Europe, in Berlin, I think, or someplace in Germany, and he uh, he was a, scholar, a great scholar and a philosopher as well as an analyst, and he was as well trained in, in classical analysis as anyone could be, but he also had experience with the relational school and appreciated much of what they had to say, how the environment impacts us as, as children, and how we're always responding to the environment, as well as the inner world. Um, but when he veered away and spoke of the importance of the analyst as a new object, which he certainly, you know, we are, you know, we're both old in the sense that uh, patients see us in light of, prior objects, but new in the sense that we offer something new and different. Uh, he, when he spoke about the new object, uh, the old school uh, tended to dismiss him as being uh, less than a, a true Freudian, and he didn't get his due as a, one of the most creative and, and in-depth thinkers of his time. In fact, his work stands today, I think, almost like no one else is, is, is enduring. I always... Um, ask students to read a lot of Lowell because I think it's uh, invaluable. Charlie Brenner was an old friend, a mentor for many, many years. I was in study groups with him for many, many years. And uh, I came to appreciate his uh, his straightforward thinking and writing, uh, his, his valuable way of looking at, uh, at the... Uh, psychology of our, our patients, his emphasis on data, data coming from the analytic situation, not from speculation, not from the theory that couldn't be substantiated, but listening to the patient 
and uh, getting whatever theory one develops from the data of the hour. He was very good that way, but he was also a man of his time, and he had very fixed ideas, which he didn't alter easily. He, uh, he had sort of a set way of thinking, which was valuable, but not inclusive. For example, he didn't put a lot of emphasis on the uh, pre-Annapole years. Uh, he said, well, they may be important, but that data doesn't come through, you know, directly in the analytic situation. And I think he said that because he wasn't watching the movements of the patient, the whole nonverbal expression of the patient. He was focusing on the verbalizations, which are more sophisticated after all. You know, they come from a time when, when a child can speak. So I think he missed a lot, but he also said it a great deal um, by his recognizing certain um, ongoing themes that occur in almost all our patients. I spoke before a few minutes ago about the calamities of childhood. That was his idea that some of those early experiences, you know, and the solutions that we have to them as children remain with us and become part of our inner world. And we bring them to every new relationship. So if one understands those earliest solutions that a child comes to, you know, as to try to resolve Oedipal and other issues, then we have a better understanding of how they're approaching uh, their conflicts today. Many things of value that he, he offered. And he was also open-minded. He, he said, well, you know, the tripartite system, the ego, the superego, and the id, that's a way of, of thinking. But it doesn't really exist in uh, and patients, they don't have a division like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we we need to think of it that way for our own understanding. But his approach to the mind was closer to what actually the neurophysiologists are saying today. Uh, a, a flux of drives that keep shifting and changing and, and impulses that are, you know, moving in all directions. And what we have at the end is what he called the compromise formation, the the final pathway, the neurophysiologist might say. You know, so he thought of himself as a neurologist his whole life. He was, in fact, a neurologist uh, in his early years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was. Mm. He came to Montefiore as uh, chief of the neurology clinic, and uh, he, he worked with some of the great neurologists of his time. And he never lost that perspective, really. So we're coming up to the end of our 50-minute hour, so I just wanted to uh, ask you if there's anything I haven't covered, something that you'd like to say before we, uh, before we finish. No, just that uh, I, I thank you, and I think that uh, I, I do maintain a certain optimism from what I see of the young people coming into the field. Some of the brightest and best people I've seen in years are now studying and learning and offering new perspectives, so I have a lot of hope for, for the future. But we have to be flexible. We have to try to meet patients' needs more and not, you know, simply hold on to concepts that no longer are, are useful and be, be what we ask our patients to be, to keep learning. You know? yeah. So, thank yeah. you so much for yeah. this. 
time and your your time. Yes, thank you, and, and quite a nice uh, way to end it optimistically there. And uh, We've been talking to Dr. Ted Jacobs, and uh, this has been Christopher Bandini for New Books in Psychoanalysis.